Cast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 16, Senpai Wars Part 6, The Battle of Aquae Sexiae. If you haven't had a chance, go to our Facebook page and vote on who you think will win in the two battles that we're talking about today and next week. Be prepared. These episodes are going to be a little bit longer than our normal. I, in fact, attempted to combine this week's and next week's episode into one, hoping to wrap things up the week after. Unfortunately, the episodes were going to be almost twice as long, if not more, when I was filling out the script. So instead, we're going to cover each one separately each week. So let's go ahead and do a recap from last episode. Remember, the Simbrai have invaded Spain. And for two years, they've attempted to set up a base there. However, they are unable to establish a home, and they're eventually kicked out. Meanwhile, Rome has rebuilt its army, thanks to the actions of Consul Rufus, and then has re-established control in Gaul, and has restored the allegiance of northern Italy, thanks to Consul Marus, who's been re-elected as consul something that's almost unprecedented in the Roman Republic. Having re-established control of the Rhone River, where the Romans were last defeated at the Battle of Arisaeo, Mars has not pushed further into Gaul due to the fact that he fears it will overstretch his already weakened forces. And that's where we are now, right before the battle, of Aquae Sextii. Now, as the army, the Roman army, has sat there, Mars has had to keep them busy, and he's also had to make sure that he keeps his job. He's kept his soldiers busy by building a canal. He's been constantly pushing on training them on how to be an actual Roman soldier, and, due to connections with the Senate, He's able to maintain his job, not one more time, but in total of four times. It seems at this point, the Sembrai have realized that Gaul and Spain are no longer in the picture for homelands. Instead, they're going to focus this next attempt in northern Italy itself. Germany, Gaul, and Spain have all been denied to them. It makes sense. Why not move into the one place that you've beaten, not once, but three times? To do this, though, the Sembrai would need another massive victory, like Arisio. They would have to completely demolish the Roman system in northern Italy. And they may even have to take all the territories north of the city of Rome itself. However, taking on Rome and settling in their territory takes more than just this one battle. And the Sembrai have to know that the fighting would be fierce. Now think back. The Sembrai haven't been fighting the Romans on their own. They've been fighting other tribes. They've been having to fight tribes in Spain. They've been having to fight tribes in Gaul. They have to be weakened, if not depleted at this point, from their original quote-unquote invasion force. 
And we know at this point that the Sembrai are for sure not alone, because all the sources agree that the Sembrai have formed a large alliance, and its only goal is to invade Italy, overwhelm the Roman defenses, and establish a new homeland in the northern Italian peninsula. Now, this grand alliance consisted of the Sembrai, the Teutones, the Ambrones, the Tucurini, and the Toigini, along with a few local tribes, probably from Gaul and Spain, that went along with the Sembrai. Now, we know the Sembrai. We've been talking about them for the last several episodes. They've been in the story since 113 BC, over 11 years of history so far with the Sembrai. We know them pretty well. What about the others? What do we know about them? Well, as I've been saying a lot about the Sembrai, these other tribes, we know maybe some stuff about them. We don't know a lot, but we know maybe some things. For instance, the Teutones. They could be from the same region as the Sembrai. They could be from the Jutland Peninsula or from the North Sea area, forced out of their homelands due to flooding, and then have decided to join in with the Sembrai to take out the Romans. The Teutones is a name that hasn't just shown up in Roman history. It's mentioned in Pythias' voyages. If you remember Pythias, we talked about him uh, several episodes ago. However, this might not be the same people that Pythias ran into. The Romans may have called this people the Teutones because their actual name was close enough to the one that they've read about. For all we know, the Teutones weren't German. They could have been from southern Gaul. They could have been from Spain. We don't know. Remember, the Romans don't differentiate between the two groups until 50 years later. The Ambrones, they're about the same amount of mystery as the Teutones. They seem to be from Holland and were probably driven out because of the rising tides that forced the Sembrai and the Teutones to leave. But all we really know about them is that According to the Romans, they didn't have as many people involved in this grand alliance as the Teutones and the Sembrai. That's their main distinction between the two. Now, our final group, we actually know a little bit more about. The Tugurni and the Toigini. I apologize if I'm messing up on those pronunciations. But we know for a fact that they don't come from any sea region. They actually come from Switzerland. They've invaded southern Gaul for their own reasons. In fact, they took part of the rebellion against Roman control after the Romans' second defeat, and probably again during their third defeat. However, we don't know why they joined the Sembrai. Maybe they decided it was the best way to keep the Romans out of the new territories. Or maybe they just wanted to keep expanding. But we know them. They've plagued the Romans before, and they will continue to do so after this event. Now, the final grouping is pretty much just a miscellaneous. We're pretty sure that these tribes that we've talked about weren't the only ones involved in this grand alliance. 
and so we assume that some local tribes from Gaul and Spain would have probably joined in, but they aren't named by the Romans. We can assume that they're probably joining in for the chance of loot, or to settle new territories that haven't been disturbed in the last years of warfare. But overall, we don't know anything about them. The Romans never tell us about them. We just assume that these major tribes that are mentioned weren't working alone. Overall, these tribes were looking for the same thing. And this grand alliance seemed to offer them the best chance that they had to get it. And hopefully for them, it would end this republic's expansion once and for all and secure Gaul and Spain, and maybe even northern Italy, for their own use. With this alliance forming, we believe that they split into two armies and they marched towards the Alps. The sources don't always agree on when they exactly split, but we believe they split from the beginning and they were both trying to find ways across the Alps into northern Italy. Remember, these passes could be held by a smaller amount of troops against larger hordes. And so by splitting their forces, it allows them to poke holes in the Romans' defensive plan find a weaker passage and break through before the Romans can effectively defend against it. So while one army marched towards the Alps from the west, the other one seemed to have come from the north and crossed there. And while these two armies are marching towards the Alps, what are the Romans doing? Well, Marius the consul who's been hired to be the savior of Rome, is currently in Italy. He's trying to fight to maintain control of his consulship for his third year in a row. Having heard that this grand alliance is marching towards his army on the Rhone probably was actually very comforting to him because it made his job of securing the consulship rather easy. Of, hey, either you guys hire me again and I can quickly defeat this large army heading towards us, or you can find someone else to do it. Your choice. Whatever the case, the Senate could not afford to not give him this consulship. And with this massive threat coming, Marius quickly rushed back to the Rhone and started to fortify his camp and begin to plan for the upcoming war. Now, this is where our sources really start to differ. Some argue that at the battle that we're about to begin, the entire force of the Grand Alliance was there. Others argue that Marius actually only faced about half the Grand Alliance army. The army was actually under the control of the Teutones and Ambrones that arrived to fight Marius here on the fields of Aquae Sexitae. Considering what followed, I believe that the second group of sources are correct, and that this is only half of the armies that were marching towards Italy. So Marus sits on the high ground near the Rhone River 
maintaining his troops within their fortified camp. And this large army of the Grand Alliance arrives. Now, from what the sources tell us, this army of the tribes tried to coax Marius out to battle so that they could finally end this, see who is better. And for three days, the Alliance army marshaled out on the plain in front of the Roman camp and challenged the Romans to fight. Quote, But he, Marius, would station his soldiers on the fortifications by detachments, bidding them to observe the enemy, and in this way accustom them not to fear their shape or dread their cries, which were altogether strange and ferocious, and to make themselves familiar with their equipment and movements. Thus, in the course of time, rendering what was only apparently formidable familiar to their minds from observations. Unquote. Now think about it. For the Romans, they're probably still shocked and scared of this grand alliance. The disaster of Arecio probably left them thinking that these forces were unstoppable, that the alliance would destroy them, and that none of them would survive. How long would they stand against a force they thought they couldn't win against and would kill them outright? How long do you think they would last? Marius had no way of knowing how long they would stand in a fight against these tribes. So instead of forcing them to fight, he instead has each section of his army stand guard. Now, be in their shoes. You're standing in the fortifications. You look out and you see a force probably twice the size of yours, if not more. The first thing you think of is immediately that you're dead. This is terrifying. This is scary. There's no way you can win against this. But then you stand there and you realize they're not charging you. In fact, they're just sitting there calling out, taunting you. And after a while... You stop becoming scared because they're clearly not coming to attack you. They're not these monsters that are invincible. They're clearly not wanting to come at you. Instead, you start to become angry because they're taunting at you. And you can't do anything about it. You have to take it. And that anger builds. And you're no longer scared. You want to fight. You want to prove that you're not what they're calling you. And so Marius uses this time that's given to him by the Grand Alliance to break the sphere in his men, to allow them to realize that they're facing other humans and that they want to face them. They want to win. After three days of this, the Teutones do attempt to breach the fortified camp, but are apparently repulsed and thus forced to give up on a fight. Instead, the Grand Alliance gathers their army and they turn and they march towards the Alps, leaving Marius and his camp behind them. Now, according to some of the sources, it takes about six days to get everyone in the Grand Alliance army moving past Marius and marching towards the Alps. Now, this isn't just an army. This is tribes, so women and children, 
are involved in this march. They can't leave them anywhere. If they do, then who's going to protect them? So they're on the march with them. Approximately 200,000 people are supposed to be involved in this march. However, if this is the same ratio of forces that the Roman Empire would have to deal with later, we're probably dealing with 60 to 90,000 warriors. Still, that is a large force to deal with. But Marius had to sit in his fortified camp for six days, watching the Grand Alliance march away from him and heading towards Italy. However, he didn't give direct chase. He didn't want to start a fight. Not yet. Instead, he followed them, always maintaining contact, but enough distance away that he could pull back before they could strike. Eventually, they reached the plains of Aquae Sextiae, with the Alps apparently only a day or two's march away. Marius could no longer afford to just shadow the enemy. He had to fight them now, or else lose all trust that the Senate had put in him, and risk surrendering all of northern Italy to this grand force. Now his soldiers had been given time to get used to their enemy, and they were ready to fight, no doubt. And we also know that he had plenty of time to learn about the lands in this region. He had two years where he was left alone to study the land, figure out where he wanted to fight. And so he could choose his ground wherever he would like to fight them. And this may have been why he waited so long to face the Grand Alliance. It wasn't the risk that they were about to get across the Alps. He just needed them to get to the fields of Aquae Sextiae. Now, the grounds of Aquae Sextiae is a wide plain next to a river. This plain slopes steeply upwards away from the river, and it's covered in woodland. Marius takes the high ground, with the tribes of the Grand Alliance between the Romans and the river itself. Now, this river isn't like the Rhone River, which spelled disaster for the Romans at Arecio. This river is fordable. While establishing his camp, Marius had one major flaw with the setup. And that was that his men would have to deal with the Alliance troops if they wanted to get access to fresh water, which meant that this camp could not be permanent. Once setting up camp, the sources for the most part agree that the battle was actually started by accident. The battle started when a group of camp servants from the Roman side stumble on a party of the Ambrones who were enjoying the hot springs next to the river. The Ambrones were in the middle of bathing, and they were caught off guard, and thus they were unprepared for the fight when it began. The camp servants, probably crying out for help, were able to get a force of Ligurians from Marius's army to charge down the hill and rush to engage the Ambrones and save the servants. The Ambrones at this point were probably in a state of confusion. First of all, this is bath time. No one interrupts bath time. 
Second of all, who takes their weapons with them when they go to take a bath? No one does. So they're scrambling to get their weapons, their shields, while the camp followers are trying to run away. And so as the Ambrones are scampering to get ready for a fight, the Ligurians rush into them. The other issue is that only parts of the Ambrones' force were actually across the river at this point. Many were still on the far side, and not only would they have to grab their weaponry, they would have to wade across the river to go help their friends that were enjoying the hot springs. And so when the Ligurians hit, they rout the Ambrones almost immediately, who break across the river. But the Ligurians don't stop. They continue. They chase across the river, and they smash into the Ambrones who are still forming on the far side. And they refuse to stand, and they turn, and they run back towards their camps. Quote, Romans then crossed the river, and finding that the enemy would not stand up to them, continued killing them as they fled right up to their camps and their wagons. Here, women came out against them, armed with swords and axes, and made the most horrible shrieking noise, attacking both the pursuers and the pursued. The former as their enemies, and the latter as the men who had betrayed them. They threw themselves into the thick of the fighting, tearing at the Roman shields with their bare hands or clutching at their swords, and though their bodies were gashed and wounded, their spirits remained unvanquished. Unquote. Yeah, women from Holland, apparently, they'll give you a good fight for it. Apparently the camp comes out to fight the Romans as they're charging. And this makes sense why the women would do this. Think about it. This isn't a military camp. This is a camp of the village. There are children and elderly located inside these camps. All their possessions are inside these camps. If the Romans get into these camps, they will destroy them. They will kill. They will kill the children. They will kill the old. So the women are acting out of desperation. And they may have attacked their own men, believing them to be cowards. Or they may have been panicking and attacking anyone and everyone. However, it does work. The Romans are stopped. The onslaught is too much. And their forces are halted. And apparently are forced to retire because it's, night is falling. But I believe the screaming women who aren't dying to these wounds are probably playing a part in this. So the first part of the battle ends after a pure happenstance, and it ends in a Roman victory. There's no doubt about that. Both forces are still in the field, though. And so the battle itself is not over. But this is the first time since Arceo the Romans could claim a victory. And this is the first time in the Sembri Wars that the Romans could claim a victory. Overall, though, this first day doesn't change much. The Romans are still heavily outnumbered, and the alliance still controls the river. Now, one of our sources, Orisius, says that on the fourth day, after arriving here on this field, the true battle begins. 
Marius had used those four days to build defenses and plan out his strategy. Remember, Marius has the high ground. He also has the river the Grand Alliance would have to cross to face him. On this high ground, he has the advantage that it's heavily wooded and it has a very steep slope. So that requires the Alliance to funnel uphill to his forces after wading through a river to get to him. By maintaining a defensive position on the hill, it allows his men to maintain a formation and not get overstretched trying to fight superior numbers. Especially against superior numbers that do way better in open formation tactics than the Romans do. So think about it. Imagine the hill in front of you. It's heavily wooded. It's heavily sloped. They can probably only see parts of the Roman line. And so this Grand Alliance army is going to charge at what they can see. And so instead of being a solid front line, you're going to see almost like arrows jutting out of the Grand Alliance charge as they all aim at this one section of the Roman line that they can see. This allows the Romans to maintain a formation because they don't have to worry about being outflanked. The Grand Alliance is coming straight at them. But Marius had something else up his sleeve. He took a small section of his force, put it under the command of Claudius Marcellus, giving him about 3,000 men, and he hid them in the woods off on his flank. Their orders were to wait until the Grand Alliance had rushed in and was attacking Marius's front lines. Once that had happened, Claudius was to take his men, go around behind the Grand Alliance, and attacked from the rear, thereby boxing the Grand Alliance in on two sides. Now, we don't know what the Grand Alliance is doing. We don't have anything from their point of view. We believe that they probably were wanting to fight the Romans, get it over with, so they could go through the passes without having to worry about being outflanked. But we don't know. We do know that Marius's plan relies on the Alliance to attack his forces. If the Alliance decide to retreat, then Marius has a plan for something else. This plan's not going to work. And the Alliance has to be willing to do this. So we believe that the Alliance was willing to fight. They were just wanting the opportunity to do so. So Marius gives them this opportunity. He moves his cavalry to the plain. And apparently that's all it takes for the Grand Alliance to consider that it's time to fight. Quote, the Teutones, seeing this, the cavalry moving out in front of them, could not wait for the Romans to come down and fight with them on equal terms, but quickly and angrily armed themselves and charged uphill. So the Teutones lead the charge up the hill, the others following in afterwards. As the alliance charged up the hill, quote, Marius exhorted the soldiers to stand their ground, and when the enemy had gotten within reach to hurl their javelins, they then took out their swords and crowded the barbarians back with their shield. And since the enemy were on precarious ground, their blows would have no force, and the locking of their shield no strength, 
but the unevenness of the ground would prevent them from standing firm in a line. Unquote. The hill was apparently working against this alliance. As their army is unable to stand as tall as the Romans, the Romans have a height advantage from being on top of the hill. They're also able to maintain their footing with their shields interlocked. And so when the alliance strikes at them, their blows aren't at the right force, and they would have already been worn out as they've charged up a hill to get at the Romans. The alliance would have been disorganized as they charged up this hill, because many of them wouldn't be as fast as others. And then they would have been struck by the pila and the javelins being thrown by the Roman forces. And when they finally ran into each other, the Romans would slowly be able to push the alliance back down the hill because they have the advantage of the height and sure footing. While the alliance men are trying to stand to someone who's taller to them and with the ground angling against them. As Marius watched his forces successfully push the alliance troops back down the hill, Marcellus attacks at the right time, for he comes around just as the front lines of the Grand Alliance is starting to crumble, and he traps the attacking force from behind. Quote, those in the rear forced along those who were in front of them, and quickly plunged the whole army into confusion, and under this double attack they could not hold out long, but broke ranks and fled. The Romans pursued them, and either slew or took alive over a hundred thousand of them. Unquote. Now, the numbers could be fudged, but it is probably true that the army has destroyed a massive force. Now, these would not have been all the casualties lost on that day for the Grand Alliance. In fact, many of these casualties would have come from the second half of the battle, when the Romans charged across the river and attacked the camps. And so many of these casualties would have been civilians who had been caught in the onslaught. Plutarch states that the casualties were so much that, quote, the people of Massilia fenced their vineyards around the bones of the fallen, and that the soil, after the bodies had wasted away in it, and the rains had fallen all winter upon them, grew so rich and became so full to its depths of the putrefied matter that sank into it, that it produced an exceedingly great harvest in the years that followed. Unquote. Yeah. Dead man wine. Now, not everyone of this alliance army was killed in this battle, as we do have reports that the kings of the Teutones and the Ambrones are captured by Roman allies, the Sequani, in the Alps. Following the battle, Marius set up a massive pyre of enemy weapons and possessions as offers to the gods, and he would have had his men out searching the surrounding countryside, looking for any enemies that had escaped the initial battle. Now, as the sources stated, as he was lighting the pyres filled with the goods of the captured enemies, a messenger arrived from Rome. He had two things to report. First, 
that Marius had just been re-elected for the year 101 BC. And that second, this was not the only Alliance army out there. Another had been found, and it had broken through the Roman defenses on the Alps and forced his colleague, Consul Catullus, to retreat into northern Italy. Armed with this news, Marius would not be able to stay and enjoy his victory, but instead he would have to move quickly or else risk losing everything to this large army that was rumored to be led by the fearsome Sembrae. And that's where we're going to end it. As I said, I looked up the notes, and combining this battle with the next battle would have made this episode twice as long, if not longer. So we're going to have to save it until next time. Sorry, guys. But don't worry, we will be covering that battle. And it will be well worth the wait, trust me. So, I hope you guys have a great week. I'll see you next Tuesday.